Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. And before we get going, would you guys join me in a word of prayer for Winterset and Norwalk and some of the areas that experienced extreme destruction yesterday? I didn't even realize until I woke up this morning that people lost their lives and it wasn't just barns and houses that got destroyed and um, just this happened in our town and our community and people are hurting and I'd love to be a community that, that prays for them. So would you join me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love We lift up those who are hurting right now, those who have lost homes, those who have lost property, those who have lost loved ones, and pray in this situation that they would know who you are and they would know how you love and that even in the middle of tragedy, you'd be present with them in a powerful way and that your people would rally around them and be a blessing in this difficult season. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So speaking of difficult things, I was having a conversation with a buddy this week who's experiencing some severe health problems. And as he was describing kind of his current reality being more challenging than he wishes it was and, and the long-term prospects of that, he paused for a second and said very assuredly, but Mike, in the middle of all of it, God is so good. And I was inspired by that. Because despite what seems like daily evidence to the contrary in his life, he is looking for and finding the goodness of God. And he's doing that because he's what I like to call a no matter what person. Some of the most encouraging, inspiring people I've ever met in my life are no matter what people. You guys know what I'm talking about? These people who are going through difficulty, whether it's relational difficulty or physical difficulty or financial difficulty, and they still have joy. They have this internal peace that lives inside of them. And if you didn't know them better, you would just think they're in denial, but they're not. They're no matter what people. They have an unshakable faith in who God is and how God loves, which means no matter what life throws their way, they're so anchored in that that they cannot be moved. They're the kind of people you look at and think, I just, I want what they have. Because something happens to us when we crash into to no matter what people. People like John and Kendra Johansson. Shout out to John and Kendra watching online. If you guys know them, you know this. John and Kendra have a daughter, Jennifer, who's almost 35 years old. Despite all of the prognostications the doctors gave her at birth. And despite her many health problems and their own health problems and the need for 24-7 nursing care, which they often can't staff and they have to do on their own and a whole host of other things, the Johansons are no matter what people. And those of you in the room who know them, you already know this, and those who don't, I pray you get to meet them soon. They're the kind of people you look at and think, I wish I had, I wish I had the kind of faith they have. Because whatever they've got, man, it's better than what I've got. It's better than the fear and the anxiety that live in me. Life scares me to death. Death scares me to death. But somehow these people, no matter what life throws at them, are doing fine. 
And it's interesting because I think when we meet people like that, something inside of us wonders what we would do if we were in their shoes. That's what happened to a guy named Dr. Francis Collins. He was a longtime director of the Human Genome Project, basically mapped out every bit of information in human DNA. There's like three billion bits of data in every cell. It's nuts. This is what the map looks like. I don't know what that means at all, but I do know it's super cool and it has allowed us to understand how diseases function generationally and what they mean for for families and family trees. It's awesome and Francis Collins was clearly a freaky genius. But before he was mapping genomes, he was just a med school student who got assigned to a residency at a hospital in North Carolina. And as he would make rounds, he kept bumping into people that were Christians, because North Carolina is the Bible Belt. He met all these people who were suffering from terminal diseases that could be mitigated but not cured, and they kept on telling him about this real hope that lived within them for eternity in the presence of their Creator through Jesus. And Collins grew up in an agnostic household, and he was a science guy, and so this really unnerved him, meeting all these no-matter-what Christians in the middle of their process of dying, and he wrote about it in a book called The Language of God. He said, I had to logically make sense of the way these people were living, even in the middle of their situation, and the only conclusion he could come to was this. He said, if faith was a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. If it was nothing more than a cultural tradition, In essence, if it's just something simple mountain folk from the South do, something this little subculture believes, then why, he asked? Why were these people not shaking their fist at God and demanding their friends and family stop all this talk, this nonsense about a loving and benevolent supernatural power? They're dying and God is not answering their prayer, and yet they still have faith. It blew Colin's mind. And then one day, a little old lady stopped him in his tracks. She said, Doctor, I've told you what I believe. What do you believe? And that question, that moment changed the trajectory of his life. Collins writes in his book that he got red-faced and he stammered, I don't even know. He says, faced. And this may be the word for your journey as well. Maybe you just haven't accepted it yet. Faced with my willful blindness. I wasn't even looking for the answers. I wasn't searching for them. Faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. Dr. Francis Collins decided to go see what could be seen and discover what could be discovered. And what he found was that the evidence for Jesus being exactly who Jesus said he was was so compelling that Collins became an outspoken Christian for the rest of his life. He decided that the truth about these claims to Jesus' divinity, these claims that Jesus was God, stepped out of eternity into history, who gave his life for us so we could be forgiven and set free, was more provable, more sensical, more logical than any other counterclaim or any other explanation of reality. The crazy thing is he didn't know that. He didn't know how true it was and how much evidence there was for Jesus being exactly who Jesus said he was until he went looking. This morning we're in week two of this series called When Pigs Fly, and we're walking through the eyewitness account of Jesus' life written down by one of his best friends and disciples, John. By the time John wrote his gospel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and in circulation for a while, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke were dead. So were all the other disciples and every one of John's friends killed for sharing the good news of Jesus 
with the world. And John had this compulsion to share that good news too. And so he set out to do that. And he organized his narrative around these seven miracles, these seven when pigs fly moments in the life of Jesus. Except John called them signs, not miracles, because he knew that we would need evidence in order to believe. In fact, Jesus said that. Jesus said, you're going to need evidence to believe that I am everything I claim to be. And John said, I saw the evidence and I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. And his, his very last words in the book is, says, I'm going to write it down so that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. What John's trying to tell us is, you guys, this whole committing your entire life to Jesus thing, it is not built on some sort of ethereal hope. It's built on the truth of who he is and what he did. That's what it's built on for me and Peter and James and Philip and Bart and the boys and Mary and Mary and Mary. And you can build your life on it too. This is not blind faith. This is human history. And I want you to hear what I heard and see what I saw so that you will believe what I know. I don't want to just tell you what happened. I want something to happen to you and in you because it happened, because of the evidence of the life. Of Jesus. So that's what John's doing. And again, he organizes this evidence around seven miraculous things Jesus did that demonstrated who he was and what he was all about. And last week, we, we talked about the first one. Jesus at this wedding in Cana, and they run out of wine, which was super embarrassing. And his mom came to him and said, Jesus, fix it. And he said, Mom, I didn't come to save weddings. I came to save the world. And she ignored him completely and went off and told everyone he's going to fix it. Because that's what moms do. They don't care how we feel at all. And Jesus fixed the wedding. It was actually really cool. And if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Because there's more to it than that. But after he did that, he made his way to Jerusalem. Which was always a recipe for trouble. Because the religious and political authorities there didn't really like this guy challenging their stale, old, self-righteous religious system that they had invented that kept them wealthy and in power. They certainly didn't like it when people followed him. But John says he did all these signs in Jerusalem and people began to believe in him. Because of course they did. Seeing is believing. And after he did that, he made his way back up to Galilee. And just so we can get a picture in our minds of what this was like, if Des Moines is Jerusalem, then Galilee's kind of like North Dakota. It's up north and west, and it's barren and insignificant, okay? That's, that's what it's like, okay? And that's where Jesus is. And then we read, once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, if Galilee's North Dakota, Capernaum is like Fargo. It's the big city. And Cana is like Minot. We've heard that it exists, but none of us know where it is. And if you're in here like, I know where it is, it's because you're from North Dakota. The rest of us have no idea where it is, right? That's Cana. And this important government official comes to him. And this is the same place where he did his first sign. And this is absolutely fascinating to me. And you might not think it jumps off the page right away. But these two moments couldn't be more different. The first one is this joyful moment. It's a wedding celebration. The second one is this tragic moment with a dying kid and Jesus stands in the same spot he was in before, faced with a completely different situation, and he steps straight into both of them. Jesus involves himself in celebration 
and he involves himself in sadness and everything in between. You guys, there is no part of your life Jesus wants no part of. There's no part of your life he wants no part of. There's nothing about you, your pain or your joy or your experience of the daily grind that is disinteresting to Jesus. He's all in on you. This official, this this royal guy with a whole lot of power comes to him. And there are a couple quick hit things that I think it's important to understand before we move on with the story. The first one is, we believe that Cana was about one full marathon away from Capernaum. It's like 26 miles. And that's not a bad drive in 2022, but it's not a great walk in 30 AD. And even if this guy was wealthy and powerful enough, and he probably was to have a horse or a chariot, we're still talking a three or four hour journey minimum. It's a hike. Second thing, Because this guy was a member of the aristocracy, he was probably part of a group called the Sadducees. And we read a lot about the the Pharisees in the New Testament, but we hear less about the Sadducees. The Pharisees were these hyper-religious guys that created all these hoops you were supposed to jump through in order to be good with God. The Sadducees were more secular. They were kind of loosely religious, but they were powerful, they were wealthy, and they were kind of deterministic. There was this educated class who believed that basically fate controlled everything. God set the world in motion and now the world is in motion and there's no afterlife and things just happen and there's absolutely nothing you can do about that and then you die. And what's shocking here, like literally everyone watching this guy approach Jesus would have been shocked, is that this intellectual deterministic guy who believes in fate, takes a really long journey to beg Jesus for help. In theory, this goes against every single thing he would say he believes. But his kid is dying. Every parent in the room can identify with this immediately, and I don't think you have to be a parent to wrap your mind around it. When your child's life is on the line, everything you thought you thought goes out the window. This guy's at the end of his rope, and he's heard maybe Jesus can help, and so he shows up. Or, and this is just a mic theory, so don't put too much stock in it. I think it might have gone down like this. Here's this wealthy guy with access to all of the best doctors and all of the best medicine. He's paid for it, and it isn't working, and he doesn't believe in any of the religious mumbo-jumbo. But his wife hears that this guy named Jesus is going up to Galilee, and Mrs. Government Official says... My baby is dying. You go get that man and you bring him back here right now. And his response is probably like, ah, are we having this conversation? Like this guy is just a weirdo and it's a long way away. And by the time we make it back, it's probably too late. I don't, babe, I don't think this is probably our path forward. And she gives him one of those wife looks like, like, oh, you thought I was asking? I was not asking. Go. And that's probably why he goes, but he does, right? He goes not knowing if his son will even be alive when he gets back. In verse 47, we read, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son who was close to death. And this is a crazy verse. Again, everybody watching this happen would have been gobsmacked. I'm using that because I don't think we use that word enough, and I'm trying to bring it back. But they would have been absolutely floored to see this rich powerful government official in a very stratified society who was at least a couple rungs above Jesus and even more rungs above the riffraff Jesus hung out with, pleading 
begging, groveling. The word here in Greek means he was like on his hands and knees just begging, please, Jesus, please, please, please do something. And he did it because he was desperate. He would not have shown up unless he was desperate. And we can feel his desperation in the story. I think on some level, all of us can relate to that. For some of us in this room, some of us watching online, the first prayers we ever prayed in our life were prayers of desperation. God, if you're real, if you're even out there at all, I need help. I am hopeless here. We understand what it's like to occupy the space this guy was in. We've had moments where our souls cried out, God, I need a miracle. This diagnosis, this relationship, this financial thing, this depression, this anxiety, it's too big for me. It's spiraling out of control, and I cannot do it alone. Please, I need help. I don't have anywhere else to go. That's what this guy does. He, he cries out for help, and Jesus' response to him seems a little insensitive. But it's kind of like last week when Jesus' response to his mom, when he said, woman, why do you involve me, seemed a little insensitive. It's not. It's just that we lose something when we translate ancient Greek into modern English. Jesus looks at this guy and the crowd, because wherever Jesus is at, there's a crowd around him, and he says, you people will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. And it almost seems like this condescending frustration. Like Jesus is like, you people, ugh. But it's not that. It's just true. Jesus is simply identifying the fact that people are going to need to see to believe. Because he's out here making outrageous claims that he's God. He's out here trying to say, I'm the Messiah. I have divine power over everything in this world. I actually created this world. Why would anybody believe that? How could anybody believe that unless he backed it up with something more than just the words of a crazy man? So that's what he's going for. He's saying, look, I get it that you're not going to believe until you see. He knows this guy didn't show up believing that he was the Messiah. This guy didn't come because he had huge faith and he was ready to surrender his entire life to God. He just believed in the miracle, not the miracle worker. He came because he was desperate and he needed something he could not produce on his own. And his entire faith was in the miracle and not the miracle worker. And so Jesus is like, you're never going to believe in the worker until you see the miracle. So if we're going to do a miracle, let's do a big one. Like if I'm going to do this one, why don't I make it so stinking ridiculous? I venture so far into wind pigs fly territory that not only will everyone believe, but they'll be talking about this one thousands of years from now. If I'm going to do a wonder, I'm about to make it wonderful. And the guy looks at him and he's like, I don't even care. Just come with me, man. Please, you got to come. You got to come. And he's begging again. This is beneath his station. Everyone's watching this powerful guy just throw himself at the feet of Jesus. And he's just saying, please, 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 please. He's going to annoy Jesus into coming with him, if nothing else. Because he has two categories in his mind. Jesus comes and my son lives. Or Jesus doesn't come and my son dies. Jesus looks at this dude in the middle of his desperation and smiles because he knows there's a third way. He understands that what this guy desperately needs most is to know who Jesus is. And Jesus is not who he thinks he is. He is much, much more. And so Jesus asks him to do something. Jesus actually asks him to do something he has been asking people to do ever since this moment. He asks him to believe based on the testimony of other people. 
He asks him to bet his son's life on what eyewitnesses have said about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He looks at the student and says, go, your son will live. If you tease out that command in the Greek, it means go on about your business. Jesus tells this guy, go on about your business, go home. No hurry, no worry. Your son's going to be fine because I can heal him from here. I think, man, dad's in the room. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus is like, oh, it's going to be good. Just go home. Like, if I were him, I'd have been thinking, bro, I cannot go home. I've read the Old Testament. My wife read the Old Testament. We know how the miracle works. The miracle man shows up and lays hands, and that's how the miracle works. If you don't come, it's not going to work. And like, uh, if I go home without the miracle man, there's going to be two deaths in my family. Like, my son is not going to be the only one in trouble if I show up without you. How could you ask me to just leave? How could you tell me not to worry? I'm supposed to leave and have peace? Like, I don't even have a category for this. If you don't come, my son's going to die. Those are the only two things that could happen. Jesus is like, now we're going with option C. I don't come and your son lives. Just go. Jesus asks him to go, trusting in something that would have been almost impossible to trust. And why does Jesus do it? Because remember, every single one of these signs is meant to point us toward who he is and what he's all about. And he wants us to know God is not worried or hurried. We might be, we might be overwhelmed. We might feel like whatever obstacles out in front of us is the end of our story and there is no going forward from where we are. But Jesus is shouting to us, thundering to us through this miracle. I am not worried or hurried. I've got you. And he's inviting us to walk this path that men and women have been walking for 2,000 years. The same path he asked this royal official to walk in his moment of anguish. And ultimately, this path is the story of an entire lifetime boiled down to a single moment. Jesus is asking us to go on about our business. With all of our unanswered prayers and our uncertainties about the future hanging over our head, believing that he is everything he promised us that he is. And it seems impossible to do that, but I know we can because there are no matter what people who wake up surrounded by difficulty with all of their unanswered prayers and their uncertainty about the future and choose to live with joy, peace, and hope because their lives are anchored in God's promises and they choose it every single day of their lives. And we can too. We can too. It's amazing to me in this story. This official showed up with a real small picture of who Jesus was. A real small picture of how miracles worked. He knew exactly how it had to be done, and Jesus was like, no, it doesn't have to be done that way. Instead, what I want to do is invite you to go on about your business, trusting in the testimony of the eyewitnesses who've seen and told you who I am. And this is what we read. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. He believed. We know he believed because he went home. We know he believed because he behaved like he believed. 
He trusted Jesus and he went on about his business. And the thing is, that kind of belief, that kind of faith is the kind that Jesus is inviting every single one of us into. It's the kind that doesn't just change our perspective and the way we see the world. It changes our choices and the way we live in the world. Martin Luther wrote that there are three aspects to true faith. And he lived in the 16th century, so they're Latin. He wrote, it's notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Information, assent, and commitment. It's knowing the truth, believing that the truth is true, and then behaving like you believe the truth is true, committing your entire life toward it. And the first two we're pretty okay with, knowing the truth. It's the going all in with our lives, that third one that we get hung up on, because it's basically asking us to treat following God like a giant trust fall. Probably a lot of us in this room have done a trust fall at some point, where you stand there and you just fall backwards and trust that the people behind you are going to catch you. And it's terrifying because in order to do it, you actually have to willfully and intentionally allow the center of gravity, your center of gravity, to move outside the sphere in which your body currently occupies. And we live in a culture that tells us we should never, ever, ever allow our center of gravity to leave ourselves in any arena of life because doing that is too vulnerable. Doing that leaves us in a space where if that person we're trusting collapses, we collapse. But the thing is, that's the only way to follow Jesus. That's the kind of faith he's inviting us into, this kind of faith that shifts the center of gravity in our lives outside of us and places it entirely in him. He's inviting us to this faith that is not just notitia and a census, but it's fiducia. He's inviting us to behave like we believe. Jesus is inviting us to take this truth about who he promises us he is and go live it every single day of our lives. And that's what this royal official does. And as he goes, we notice something. His faith has shifted. The center of gravity of his life has changed. It's no longer in the miracle. Because he didn't even get the miracle he was after. Jesus didn't go with him. Now he doesn't believe in the miracle. He believes in the miracle worker. He goes home. He heads back on this marathon journey to a wife. He's pretty sure is going to be surprised and possibly furious that he did not bring the miracle man with him. And this is what happens. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This guy's whole household believed, and of course they did, because seeing is believing, right? Jesus told them, you're not going to believe unless you see, and then they saw, and they believed, and they realized that all of those rumors that they'd heard, all of the testimony from the eyewitnesses, those, those rumors of a son of man, stories of a savior, holiness with human hands, all of that was true, and they knew it because they watched it happen in their lives, and it's so cool because Jesus looked at this guy for a second sign and asked him to go walk by faith towards something he could not see. And if you're anything like me and you grew up in or around church, that phrase, walk by faith, not by sight, is one that's familiar to you. In part because it's the Bible, it's Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. But I grew up kind of thinking that walk by faith, not by sight, meant in places where there's no real evidence, 
in places where there's, there's no way of, of knowing anything better. We're just supposed to like believe anyway. And that's not quite what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians. That's not quite what John is trying to tell us in his gospel. They're not inviting us to some sort of blind hope. Walking by faith, not by sight, doesn't mean burying our heads in the sand about the broken, shattered nature of our reality. It's not wishful thinking. Walking by faith, not by sight, means building our entire lives on the idea that God is exactly who He promised us He would be. It means believing in God's promises even in the moments where we cannot see God's hand at work. It's walking out into a dark and broken world and behaving like we believe what God said is true. Living like we really are forgiven for everything, past, present, and future, because his blood counts for us. Like we don't have to earn our way to God. We don't have to be good enough and righteous enough. We can't, but Jesus already did that for us. Living like we are loved beyond our wildest imagination, no matter who we are or what we've done, you guys, that is what changed the world. Christianity didn't reshape the future of this planet. It didn't transform the human story because everybody got everything they wanted every time they prayed. Christianity transformed the human story because of love. Because of the love of God lived out in the person of Jesus who willingly exchanged his life for ours on the cross and said, if you want to know who God is, look at me. And the people who looked at him, who walked with him, who saw him, who heard him, who witnessed his signs and wonders, who watched him crucified and met with him after he was risen, had a fire inside them to go share that love with everyone they crashed into in this dark world. And they were willing to be killed for it. In the first couple centuries, over two million of them died for sharing their faith. But they died willingly because they knew it was not in vain. They knew that their sacrifice was not in vain. Their generosity was not in vain. Their love was not in vain. It was anchored in something real, in someone real. And you guys, it's the exact same thing for us. Our serving is not in vain. Our giving is not in vain. Our loving is not in vain. Our living is not in vain. It's anchored in Jesus Christ. And if we live like it's real, if we live like he is everything he promised us it would be or he would be, then even though life is hard, even though sometimes we're hurting, we cannot see God moving. He will work in and through our lives to change the world. When we live like we believe, that's the kind of stuff that causes people like Dr. Francis Collins to press pause, lean in, wonder, and search. It's the kind of stuff that changes the lives of the people around us because they begin to believe based on the testimony of our lives, just like we believe based on the testimony of those who've gone before us, on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. That's why John wrote this down. He knew we needed to know what he'd seen. And my hope this morning is the same as his. I pray that we would believe. I pray that we would believe the same way we would believe if we had seen everything John saw. Because here's the deal, you guys. We need that kind of faith. You need that kind of faith. You're going to need it. I promise you, you will. I'm going to need it. We will all need that kind of faith. This world is going to throw plenty of curveballs our way. 
We will experience pain and suffering and heartache and there will be moments where we cannot see God moving and we'll feel hurried and we'll feel worried and we'll wonder if we've been abandoned and there's some part of our life God wants no part of. And in those moments, God will ask us something. He will ask us to go on about our business. Even with our unanswered prayers and our uncertainty about the future. He will ask us to go on about our business believing that he is everything he promised that he is. And right then and right there, it will make all the difference in the world for you and me, for our hope, for our joy, for our perspective, for our ability to make an impact, for our lives and for our futures. It will make all the difference whether we have a no matter what faith or we don't. Whether we let the world crush us or we behave like we believe. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted in spite of your changing moods and circumstances. Like faith changes everything. And if we live no matter what lives, and John tells us we have every reason to do so, if we anchor everything we are in the promise that Jesus is who he says that he is, then we will be able to be fully present and fully alive in every moment, despite the fact that we're surrounded by a world of death and disconnection. And we will be able to live the kind of lives that point other people toward that as well. Will you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not abandoning us to our brokenness, to our pain. Lord, we come before you as a ragged crew of broken people living in a shattered world. All of us have unanswered prayers. All of us have uncertainty about the future. And all of us know that even more is coming our way. And I pray in the middle of that, that you would thunder in our souls today, that we walk out of here knowing that we know, that we know that we can build everything on the idea that you are who you say you are. Lord, will we be people who transfer the center of gravity of our lives outside of us and we place it entirely in you so that we can live with hope in the middle of hopelessness and so that we can shine a light in the middle of this darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.